Families you know, where a simple hello lets you know everything is okay. Neighbors are there in the good times and the folks you can count on when you need some help. That's who we are at Neighborhood Medical Center. Right in your neighborhood and always there when you need us. For all of your health care needs, visit us at your Neighborhood Medical Center. Good evening and welcome to the 22 <coughs> Women Empowering Women virtual panel discussion. This evening, we recognize National Women and Girls HIV AIDS Awareness Day with a panel discussion to explore how women are currently impacted by HIV AIDS. I am Kara Brown, your moderator. I'm the case manager of the Ryan White HIV AIDS program at Neighborhood Medical Center. Our panelists this evening are Dr. Danielle Williams, Dr. Jasmine Bryant, Ms. Geraldine Ward, Mrs. Melissa Walton, and Ms. Sheila Morris. Thank you, ladies, for sharing your time and expertise this evening. Let me share a little bit about each of our panelists. Dr. Danielle Williams is the Pharmaceutical Program Manager with the Florida Department of Health Bureau of Public Health Pharmacy. She graduated from Florida State University with a degree in exercise science in 2011. In 2015, she graduated from the Florida A&M University College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Science. In 2017, Dr. Williams completed a pharmacy practice fellowship with FAMU specializing in HIV management. She is certified as a practicing HIV pharmacist. She currently is employed with the Department of Health and is an adjunct professor of pharmacy practice at FAMU. Dr. Williams is dedicated to educating the underserved community on HIV prevention and provides insight on pharmacological treatment options for those living with HIV AIDS. Dr. Jasmine Bryant is a Tallahassee native and an assistant professor in the School of, School of Allied Health and Science Division of Health Science at Florida A&M. She earned her Doctor of Philosophy degree in communications with a specialty in health communication from the University of Miami. She holds a Master of Public Health degree with a concentration in behavioral science and health education from FAMU's Institute of Public Health. Dr. Bryant's research interest lies at the intersection of sexual and racial minority health and interpersonal and mass communication. Dr. Bryant recently published a piece entitled 90 Days, an Investigation of a Short Entertainment Education Film to Improve HIV Status, Disclosure Among Black Women Living in Miami-Dade County in the Journal of Social Science and Medicine. Ms. Geraldine Wood is a dedicated intercessor, a litur liturgical dance and flag ministry instructor for over 25 years. Ms. Ward believes that all believers can have a successful walk with Christ by applying the practical principles of the word of God and by having a consistent prayer life. Ms. Ward and her husband, Robert, have a successful marriage and a heart for success in marriage. Their book of a series, for better or worse, a dramatic testimony of staying married despite H having HIV AIDS 
equip and strengthen marriages as they travel through life's fire. Miss Melissa Walton has worked with HIV AIDS prevention for the past 20 years. She is currently a supervisor to a staff that provides services to over 1,000 HIV AIDS clients. Melissa loves what she does in the work of public health. She is married, has two adult sons, and a four-year-old daughter. Ms. Sheila Morris is a Tallahassee native and a graduate of Florida A&M University. Her work history includes positions as a disease intervention specialist, HIV AIDS educator, HIV AIDS prevention and training consultant, minority health coordinator, HIV AIDS Part C coordinator, and prevention and outreach program manager. Ms. Morris' efforts to reach men, women, and children have resulted in stronger families, resilience, and improvement of overall health in Leon and surrounding counties. Welcome, ladies, and thank you again for sharing your expertise with us this evening. Our topic for the evening is how are women currently impacted by HIV AIDS? Ladies, let's begin. According to the CDC, in 2019, Black women accounted for 55% of HIV diagnosis among women. White women accounted for 22%. Hispanic Latino women accounted for 18%. How knowledgeable are women ages 20 to 30 about HIV? Is preventing the spread of HIV something of concern to this age range? Dr. Bryant, I'm going to ask you to address that. Um, so to just start out to your first um, question about knowledge, um, one of the primary issues with HIV, HIV prevention among this age group is lack of awareness, right? So how is HIV transmitted? Um, addressing some of the myths around HIV, dispelling the thought that only gay males get HIV, right? Especially among heterosexual women. But then also I think it's not necessarily maybe whether they're concerned, but what are their risk perceptions of contracting HIV, right? So even if they are knowledgeable, for example, that um, you know having sex without a condom is a risk factor for contracting HIV, how that is actually applied in their own personal life to determine a risk factor matters. So sometimes you may have um, women in this age group who may have an ex-boyfriend that they're still sleeping with, but because they know them, they're not using a condom, right? Well, that's a risk factor, but they may not perceive it to be so, which is, in fact, putting them at risk for contracting HIV. So I think one of the primary focuses among this age group is increasing their perceptions that they are at risk for contracting HIV, um, not just trying to give them knowledge and awareness. They may have that, but they may not perceive themselves to be actually at risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is, do you think preventing the spread of HIV is something that they're concerned about? Dr. Williams, you want to add to that? So I, I definitely feel like with this particular age group, that 25 to 34 um, age group is actually the most affected population as far as HIV diagnosis. And so it's definitely something that should be a top priority and a huge concern for women that are within this age group. And so um, just from my own experience, I wasn't that far removed from that 20 to 30 age group. And so I definitely feel like during this time, women are trying to find their identity. They're trying to 
um, figure out who they are. And so they may adopt models such as, you know, YOLO, you only live once and they're thrill seeking. They're trying to engage in behaviors that are considered risky when you think about it, but they're not concerned with the consequences of their actions. And so I think this is especially dangerous because when you have that mindset, like Dr. Bryant was speaking of, when you don't see yourself as risk um, or at risk, you can put yourself in situations that can have drastic consequences. And one of the things that I think about is the risk of STD infections as well. And so as we know, um, STD infections can actually serve as an entryway for HIV to get into the body. And so we as health professionals, as advocates for HIV, um, definitely should encourage women within this age group to protect themselves, to practice safe sex, to get tested regularly, and to maybe explore other preventive options. You know, we do have something called PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, which is Truvada. It's a once-a-day pill that you can take to prevent yourself from getting HIV. And more recently, there's also an injectable medication that has been approved for those who maybe aren't necessarily comfortable with taking the pill every day. Um, and so they can have this injection that they can take to also prevent themselves from getting HIV. And so uh, medication adherence is gonna be extremely important because we wanna make sure that if someone uh, chooses to get on medications that they're going to take it as they should uh, so that it can you know, provide those effects that we want. And so um, there are measures that we can recommend to women to better protect themselves. And we also need to make sure that we keep our foot on the gas and make sure that this remains a top priority for that age group. Okay, so using the same statistics, how knowledgeable are women ages 30 and up about HIV and preventing the spread of HIV? Is that something that they're concerned about? Um, Ms. Walton, how about you? So, in, in my experience, what we find with, um, with women who, who we've served, um, you know, once they get to be this age and, and going up is that they may be aware, they certainly are educated, but this is when they're having kids, they've got more responsibilities, they may be caring for, you know, maybe not at this stage, older parents, but they could. And so they start to, women tend to take care of everyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we see people when they come to us, if they're coming because maybe they just really are very sick at that point. Um, but the reason that they haven't taken care of themselves is because they've been taking care of everybody else, um, which is admirable. Um, and so trying to empower you know, women to pay attention to their health in addition to, um, you know, the health of everyone else. Um, of course, the way to do that is to assist them with linking to the benefits, um, the resources that can help them with those things, whether it be childcare or healthcare or, you know, respite, maybe, you know, they need to learn to, I don't know, go do yoga or breathe or something. But yeah, just and not judging them for not taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think a lot of times the shame that women have is that they do know what they're supposed to do. They just don't have any time to actually do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so Miss Ward, with women in the age group 30 and up, 
do you think they're concerned about HIV and, and you know, how, the spread of the disease? Well, coming from a standpoint of someone who's living with it, and I'm in that 30 over range, I won't tell exactly how old I am. Um, I, I agree with Ms. Walton that, you know, we have a lot of things that we're caring for, but I believe that um, the knowledge is there. I think that what has to happen is that um, application of the knowledge has to take place. And um, it is a struggle for us, this 30 plus, because of what all we balance, but we have to discipline ourselves that if we want to live, um, we must make a decision to take care of our health. Um, and I know that it's easier said than done, but if we want to live, we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to make the changes. We're going to have to be aware of the, the signals and signs of our bodies, what our bodies are telling us, because our bodies do talk to us. Um, but we may say, well, uh, let me just do this one more thing. You know, you about to fall out, but you feel like you do need to do one more thing, but we need to listen to those, those signs and signals that are being said to our body, because that also increases our knowledge. Because if our body is telling us something, we go get seen, then we'll find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. So Ms. Morris, do you think that, that women in this age group, do you think they're interested in in knowing how to prevent the spread of the, the disease? Well, I think they're interested, but it goes back to what everyone else has said. The bottom line is being concerned. So, for example, for 30 and up, kind of look like what Ms. Walton said, they take care of everybody else. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is a lot of people in that age group think it's not me. I'm married. I'm a member of so-and-so church. I'm a part of so-and-so organization is never going to happen to me. So I think they are aware of what's going on. They know about HIV and AIDS, but are they really paying attention? Mm -hmm. So with that being said, that comes back to being able to educate the community more by way of what they're doing right now, talking about um, with the various commercials that come on early mornings, late evenings. Um, encouraging women to go in and get tested, taking care of your overall health. So I think that's the bottom line when it comes to 30 and up, if all the different practices will tell them to take care of your health. So we look at it across the board. When you go in and get your annual checkup, not only be concerned about breast cancer, but also concerned about HIV. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Ms. Ward, can you explain very briefly to our audience because we talk about HIV, we've been talking about it, but what is it and how does, how does it affect the woman's body? HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus. And it means that your immune system does not work like everybody else's. We'll just keep it in layman's terms. I won't keep trying to do the medical terms. It means your body just doesn't work like everybody else, period. That's just it. You have to be more mindful around people who are sneezing, coughing, who have other diseases and other things going on with them. And as far as a woman's body, um, it can affect us in numerous ways. It, it increases our, um, uh, uh, our leaning towards heart disease. It, it increases our gynecological challenges. And I'm a living witness about that. I had to have a full hysterectomy because I 
um, ended up with endometrial cancer. Um, it caused your lymph nodes to, to swell. And I mean, with everything that we've already said about the things that women have going on in their bodies, uh, it's, it's really important that we begin to pay attention to the fact that HIV is out there because it increases the things that are already going to happen with all we already have on our plate. So it's humo, in, human immunodeficiency virus, and it makes you more susceptible to other diseases and other viruses and other things that are going on out there. Okay. So, so as a woman, if I think I've been exposed to HIV, but I'm not sure, where do I start to get the testing or the, and the counseling? And if I'm positive, what do I do next? Ms. Morris, would you like to share? So if it's a woman that's here locally and they feel that they've been exposed to HIV or tested positive at their local provider office, I would hope their provider has information there to provide them with, um, I always call it a toolkit to let them know where to go, such as going to your facility, neighborhood medical services, Bond Community Health Center, MACA, Big Bean Care, Big Bean Cares, and any other agency. So that would be the first step. Or coming by the county health department if you think you've been exposed and get the test done. Okay. So Ms. Walton, please share with the audience what HIV care is for a woman and what's required to receive care and how they can navigate the system. Well, right now there's there's a lot of wonderful options. Um, you know, I've been around a long time. It used to be that that when you became HIV positive, you didn't have much choices. Um, so we have a lot of wonderful medical facilities. Um, uh, Ms. Morris had already mentioned, you know, Bond and Neighborhood and um, CarePoint, and then there's private physicians as well, depending on your insurance. Um, if you are uninsured, there are plenty of opportunities as well. Um, if you need like wraparound services, so you know you need help to go into the dentist or you want someone to help coordinate your services, um, you can enroll with Big Ben Cares. Um, the, the one thing about HIV in the state of Florida is it's, it's very accommodating for a large number of people. So, I mean, we cover people up to $50,000 a year income. Um, and the reason for that is, is because things are very expensive in the HIV world. Um, so the state of Florida has just always kept it within 400% of the poverty level, which is wonderful. So we would want to start off with getting proof of your status, um, proof of income. Um, we can be real creative with that. So, I mean, if you don't have any income and you are living with a friend or you're living under the bridge, I mean, we can... You can self-report things. You can get letters of support. If you have Medicaid or food stamps, we can utilize that as your proof of income, also your proof of residency. And then we're going to screen you for insurance, um, you know, see if you're eligible for Medicaid, those kinds of things. So, you know, there's lots of different places that you can go to. And like, like uh, Ms. Morris was saying, you know, I would hope today, you know, in, in our counties that people would know who to send people to when you're talking about HIV, because there's a lot of us and, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, 
there's plenty of people for all of us to serve, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think we serve very well together as well. Okay. So today is Women and Girls HIV AIDS Awareness Day. So we've talked about women in their 20s. And I'm asking this to the panel. What is it that we should let our young girls know, our teenagers? Because teenagers are sexually active. And, you know, we talk about older women, we're not addressing the teens. And I remember, you know, years ago, we took a group of teens to a halfway house to talk about, you know, HIV AIDS and prevention and that type of thing. And they walked away with, we are so tired of hearing about HIV AIDS, like it can't affect them. How can we get information to this to these teenagers about prevention, you know, protecting themselves and, you know, healthy sex. So whoever wants to chime in first, I'll, I'll we'll listen. Well, okay, I'll go first. Okay. I think one of the, well, a couple of things. Um, I've been out here, I'm like, Melissa, we've been out here a long time. So, one stumbling block is I know there's only it's limited what you can say at public schools. That's one issue. So the best way to get is get involved with organizations such as parks and um, Tallahassee Parks and Recs or whatever city you're living in, your local community centers, um, through churches and through community organizations. A lot of children are involved with a lot of different organizations such as Girl Scouts and beyond. So that's one way. Um, then we have to be creative because I had a young guy to tell me, he said, this is what happens. All you old people are on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Then people who are like Danielle and um, Jasmine age, they're on Instagram. So the younger people are on TikTok. So to get the information out, we got to do it electronically. So. And so we got to be creative now, as opposed to before, we can go out and set up display tables and go do presentations. They're not going to do presentations. We just got out of COVID. So we got to meet them where they are, just like we're doing tonight. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's my feeling how to reach people is, hey, everybody, when you see kids now, what are they doing like this? Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's how we'll be able to reach them. Yeah. And, and I want to just tag on to that, Sheila. I think we need a younger face. Um, you just mentioned that everybody's face is older. Everybody's older. We need a younger face. I mean, I don't know of any, you know, teenagers that have been affected, but, you know, if we can get their face that they're living with it and get them on TikTok and all these different places, I believe that'll be an, an, an additional tool to make it more effective because, Right now, people are looking for folks that look like them. You know, right. that's what they're looking for. Right. Yeah. And and I kind of think that sometimes, you know, some of the, the younger, the, the youngsters, I'll say, they don't think that it is as serious as it is. You know, we know now that AIDS is now, HIV AIDS is now more of a chronic manageable disease. So they don't really consider how important it is to protect themselves all the time. Um, we have a question from someone who is, is listening to us or watching, and they want to know what programs are available for women with HIV in Tallahassee. 
programs for women. Melissa? I mean, like health programs? I mean, uh -huh. yeah, I think they want to know if there are any specific programs for women. Um, well, I mean, our, the programs that we have are for anyone living with HIV, they aren't specific for women. Um, I mean, we, we can provide, um, you know, assistance with linkage to pharmaceuticals, mental health, um, transportation, case management, those types of things. But there isn't anything that's just specific necessarily for women. Um, you know, we do, I mean, we, we do have um, with our, our thousand, you know, clients that we serve every year, about 30% uh, of them are women. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, we do see an awful lot of women in, in our area. Um, and um, unfortunately right now with COVID, you know, we don't have anything specific with like um, um, with support groups. I mean, very long time ago, there was a women's support group, but that's been ages ago. Cause of course, like, um, like Sheila was saying, you know, people are drawn now to the, the internet. Um, so I'm imagining there are those resources that are out there. Um, we do have peer support. So currently both of my peers are women. Um, so we do try to link people if they have specific needs. So, I mean, certainly, even though my peers are older women right now, they look like us. Well, besides Dr. Williams, <laughs> they look like the rest of us. But, um, but, I mean, you know, they still are women, so they can certainly discuss women's issues. Okay. Anybody else know of anything in the community? Okay. All right. Is anybody familiar with the ADAP program that can share some information on that? Ms. Morris? That would be Dr. Danielle Williams. Ah, mm -hmm. Dr. Williams. So the ADAP program is the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, and it is a federal program that provides assistance to patients living with HIV AIDS. So, for example, if a patient has um, a financial situation where they're not able to afford medications on their own or they may have insurance that does not cover the medications and they need to um, be able to afford it, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program will come in and allow that patient to access medications free of, free of charge, uh, depending on the situation, or for a very limited copay. And it's offered through the Florida Department of Health. Um, I believe that patients can see uh, different providers. Uh, I know sometimes they may go to neighborhood medical center and, and be seen or bond or care point. Um, and so those, those patients are able to get the health services that they need, uh, which is huge for uh, patients who are disadvantaged, need assistance. They are able to um, get the quality care that they, that they need. Okay. Um, we have someone who wrote in and said T-O-P-W-A is a program that targeted women who are HIV positive and pregnant or at high risk of STDs and HIV. So that's a resource. So Dr. Williams, HIV medications have helped women live longer and give birth to babies who are HIV negative. 
How do HIV medications work in the body? What important information or tips should women know about the medicines and how they affect the woman's body? Yeah, so HIV medications have literally given people their lives back, right? It's no longer considered a, a death sentence. Women and anyone living with HIV can still live a normal, long life, just like someone with hypertension, with diabetes or high cholesterol. And the way HIV medications work is that they are designed to attack or disrupt different parts of what's called the HIV life cycle, which is basically just the process by which the virus uh, spreads throughout the body. And this is, of course, an effort to stop the virus from continuing to destroy our immune system, specifically our CD4 cells. And so there's some medications that prevent the virus from actually attaching to those cells in the immune system. Um, some medications work with preventing the virus from creating DNA. Uh, some medications prevent the virus from having the viral DNA attached to our own human DNA. And then you have other medications that prevent more viral cells from maturing and then going around and infecting other cells throughout the body. And so it's important to know with HIV medications, just like any medication is that they could potentially cause side effects. And those side effects can range from mild symptoms to severe, right? Or they may not cause any side effects at all. And so Ms. Ward talked about something that I you know, feel is so important and that is making sure that we as women listen to our bodies. You know, I believe that God created our bodies to be so smart and dynamic to where they literally will tell you when there's a problem or when something just doesn't feel right. And so we definitely wanna make sure that we're in tune with that and be able to recognize when something isn't right. Um, as far as additional tips and information, of course, you should always talk to your provider or to your pharmacist before you start taking any medication just so that they can explain what some of those potential side effects are um, and that you're able to recognize them should they occur. Um, just off the top of my head, you know, some of the medications may cause nausea or um, difficulty sleeping or maybe fatigue. And those usually go away on their own within a short amount of time. But then there are some that actually will require uh, immediate medical attention. And so again, talking to your provider, asking those questions, talking to your pharmacist, most successful health profession for the plug. Um, <laughs> so the last thing I would say is um, every one of us is different, right? So our bodies react differently to medications. For example, what may cause me to go back and forth to the bathroom um, may not do anything for Ms. Sheila. And so again, it goes back to making sure that we're aware of our bodies, that we're listening to them, and then we are definitely reaching out to a trusted medical profession if we need it or if you have additional questions. Okay. And, so and then if you, if you don't, if can I, can I just say something to that with Dr. Williams? Um, it's mm -hmm. very true, Dr. Williams, because at the onset, the medications that they were making were very strong. And I'm only um, at that time a buck quarter um, soaking wet. And the medicine that they were making was for a 600, a 200 pound man. And it made me very ill. I could not function. And so I had to go back to my provider and have them find something that wasn't as strong for me. So I just want to second that with you, that, that we must work with our provider to find what works for us. 
Mm-hmm. And um, even, you know, with that, definitely the newer medications that they have come out with are a lot safer and more tolerable uh, for patients. And so um, now you don't have as, as much severe issues or long-term issues that you saw with the more earlier agents that they came out with. Mm-hmm. So we hear about PEP and PrEP. Dr. Bryant, can you explain to us what that is? Um, I can start it out and then Dr. Williams can take over. Um, So PrEP is the pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is used among individuals who are not living with HIV. And so PrEP is a biomedical intervention that an individual can consume once a day or as um, Dr. Williams mentioned, by injection. And what it essentially does is prevents the transmission of HIV to the body, right? So if someone is exposed, to HIV if they're on PrEP. It will essentially um, mitigate that transmission from happening. What PEP is, is post-exposure prophylaxis, which means let's say someone is not on PrEP and they have unprotected sex and they find out the person um, that they had sex with is living with HIV. Well, within a 72-hour period, the person will need to seek out an um, agency that can provide PEP. And what that will do is help prevent HIV um, exposure from turning into an HIV transmission. So PrEP is what you take on the front end consistently, regularly, and then PEP is what you can take should you become um, exposed to HIV. Um, But as I know, it's important that you um, or a person seeks out PEP within 72 hours. After that, um, it's a challenge for that to actually be effective. Dr. Williams, I pass it over to you. You did perfect. So the only thing <laughs> that was awesome. The only thing that I would add is uh, one of the one of our trusted colleagues, Dr. Brianna Jernay. I'm definitely not going to take credit for this, but one of the things that I know that she uses as an analogy to help people understand the difference between PEP and PEP is to think of PrEP as a birth control pill that you would take every day to prevent pregnancy. And then PEP would be your plan B or your after the fact, you know, what, what just happened. I need to, you know, make sure that I don't become pregnant. So I'll go take plan B. And so um, PEP is considered a medical emergency. So as Dr. Bryant stated, it's extremely important to start treatment within the 72 hours. So you need to actually start taking uh, a full out HIV regimen, which is pre- by the provider, and you would take that regimen for 28 days. And so within that, there's some testing that needs to be done to make sure that you have not, in fact, contracted HIV. And then there's also going to be some testing uh, follow-up to make sure that while you were on the the regimen that you also did not develop HIV. And so, Dr. Brian, you did a a phenomenal job. So, um, But yeah, so definitely making sure we understand the difference between the two and making sure when someone does present, with questions that we know if they are looking to, um, you know, be involved in a situation with someone that has HIV and they want to protect themselves from getting it, then we want to recommend PrEP. And then if they have a potential exposure, whether that is what we call an occupational exposure, which is something that would happen if you work in a clinical setting or a hospital where maybe you were exposed to a needle stick or you have non-occupational exposure, which would be your typical, having unprotected sex, or maybe um, if you are injection drug user and come in contact with an infected needle, then definitely PEP would be 
what we would run and recommend. And again, that 72 hours is going to be extremely critical to start on medications. So I know on TV, you see the commercials about the, the PEP and the PrEP. And on the commercials that I've seen, they mostly feature men. Are women being left out of that? Hmm. Is there a reason for it? Does it affect our bodies differently? Or is that just the marketing? So I guess I can start out um, from a health communication angle. Um, that is certainly one of the challenges with getting heterosexual women to consider PrEP is that earlier on when PrEP was placed on the market, it was primarily targeted to males who engaged in male-to-male -male sexual contact. So a lot of heterosexual women did not think that that was a strategy that they could use to, you know, prevent HIV. And so it's still um, a dire need from a communication angle to redirect that messaging, right? So that women can know, hey, this is also a preventive tool available to you as well. Um, so from a messaging standpoint, um, it's really a challenge when we're talking about being able to let heterosexual women know that PrEP is a strategy for them as well. Um, so I'll, I'll pass it over. But from the comm side, a lot of work has to be done to, you know, prioritize that population as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about stigma. So Dr. Bryant, from your experience conducting outreach in the communities and conducting HIV research, how can we help reduce the stigma around women's sexuality and HIV transmission? Because we want women to feel more comfortable talking about it and talking to their partners about HIV. Absolutely. So there's... um two components to that question. So I'll say for women who are not living with HIV, um, one of the things that is critical um, in addressing stigma is reducing the taboo and shame around you know, getting tested. Um, I've heard women say, well, I don't wanna go get tested because then people will think I'm sleeping around, right? So women should not feel that getting tested and checking on their sexual and reproductive health is an indicator that they're loose or fast or, you know, living some type of, you know, high risk, bad lifestyle. Um, and so that's one of the primary issues is that women don't want to get tested because of other stigmas associated with what does that look like? Um, and so if you don't get tested, you'll never know your status, right? And so that's one of the primary barriers to um, women getting tested. As it relates to individuals and women specifically who are living with HIV, right, who may want to have those conversations with their partners. Um, empowerment, firstly, right, um, because internalized stigma is a big deal, right? How women who are living with HIV feel about themselves impact how they communicate their HIV, if they communicate their HIV status, as well as the support that they can get. Right. Um, and then also being realistic and understanding um, that women who are living with HIV may need assistance and support with disclosure. So oftentimes people are told, OK, you have to disclose in the state of Florida. It's illegal if someone does not. Right. But we have to be realistic that violence, you know, is a strong outcome. Um, oftentimes, if women disclose to a partner who is not ready to receive that information. And so there are several different types of stigmas that we would need to address in both populations, women living with HIV and women who are not. Um, but primarily empowerment, um, providing them with resources to disclose, providing them with resources to 
negotiate condom usage if they're, you know, if they are living with HIV or even if they're not living with HIV. Um, and then additionally, just addressing the taboo around sex and being open with engaging in sexual activity and testing. Miss mm, Morris, you have anything you want to add because of your history with doing outreach? What have you seen or what have people said to you about the stigma and about uh, coming forward to get tested or to get advice? You're on mute. I um, wholeheartedly agree with um, Dr. Jasmine Bryant, what she's saying about one you have is twofold. You got your women who are already positive and then you have women who are not positive. Um, just, you know, I remember a few years back, people thought if they went to certain facilities and it wasn't even an HIV clinic, that they would think that they had HIV. So um, and then they also thought if you brought it up with your own provider, that maybe your provider would think, oh, you were a bad person. So again, again, empowering women, doing more messaging. Like I said earlier, everybody's in that stage where you're on your phone, you're on the computer. If we can get more things out through social media, that would help better. Because before, you know, we were out in the trenches and, you know, beating, um, beating the doors, you know, having a lot of events. But now, due to COVID, people are still inside. So we're going to have to get back to the messaging again, as she said, you know, um, just, you know, what people have said, they don't want to go, or if I know, then I'm going to just feel really bad and I may die immediately. Those are some of the things that were said over the years. Now, people, again, you mentioned earlier that it's like, most people could take it as a regular chronic disease. So again, I guess from our standpoint as the professionals, we need to really have more messaging out there to make sure that we are reaching everybody. So okay. I'm gonna address this to the panel. How can we empower young women to feel more comfortable having those conversations with the men in their lives or the men they may come in contact with? How can what can they do to break the ice to start that conversation? Because again, with the stigma, it's like, oh, you know, I, I thought you were a nice girl. Why are you asking me about this? You know, how can we make young women feel comfortable asking their partners about their status or even suggesting that they use condoms? So I can start us out. Um... So I, I teach a course on campus that addresses a lot of sexual health issues. And one of the conversations that I have um, with my students, what they stated was, it's a lot easier to have sex than to communicate about sex. Okay. And so what their concern was, how do you have that conversation without being too private or you know getting into their privacy? And my response to them was, well, if their privacy is gonna touch your privacy, then now, you know, it's fair game to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. And so just really trying to normalize that conversation to let them know, like having a conversation about sex with a partner, that's no different than what do you want to eat tonight, right? Mm -hmm. Like don't formulate in your head that it's such a big deal. Just ask the questions, have the conversation. 
Um, if you maybe need to start the conversation out through text message and kind of see where it's going, right, to gauge their type of responses and then build that into a face-to-face -face conversation. But just really understanding that, you know, if you're planning to get intimate, then their privacy is your, it is your business just like your privacy is their business, mm -hmm. right? So just trying to normalize that conversation and help them, you know, see it from a humorous angle, but a side where they can really take that conversation forward. Mm -hmm. Anybody want to add? I, I like what you said about just asking the question because sometimes that's the quickest, easiest way to get the answer you want instead of dancing around the subject with, because you don't feel comfortable. So is there any kind of, of, of verbiage that we can share with these young ladies that they can use to get the answer that they're looking for? I don't, I don't think it's a verbiage. I think, it, again, like Dr. Bryan has said, it's just strictly just asking the question. Mm -hmm. Like, where do you want to eat? Um, they want to know, well, what's your major? When was the last time you was tested? I mean, you know, I think when we go out and we're educating as uh, counselors, professors, that we can include it in our messaging, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. don't change that up. Just saying, hey, these are the things that you need to ask your partner. Are mm -hmm. your partners because you'll be surprised um i know like i said we've been out here a long time and sometimes when you're doing counseling and testing with people and you said how many sex partners you had, you'd be surprised they change well depending on what the season is if it's homecoming it may be boyfriend a if it's in the semester it may be boyfriend b so whoever it is a b or c just ask the question mm -hmm. okay so the cdc statistics tell us that black women in the u.s remain the group of women who are most affected with HIV. The HIV messages and care, are HIV messages and care different for black women? And what can be done to better protect or educate black women to further reduce the number of new infections? Um, that's a question for everybody. Um, and, and what I'm thinking about the messaging is when I see commercials on TV, I don't see many black women in it at all, period. So are they leaving out the population of black women and what should they do to be more inclusive? Let's see. Miss Ward, haven't heard from you in a minute. What do you think? Um, I believe there should be more commercials. I mean, as Ms. Morris has said numerous times this evening, it, it is about us getting back, getting into this technological age and getting on these digital platforms. And that's one of the reasons why, even though I've been living with this for 20 years and still, you know, working through some stigmas, I'm making my voice be heard now from from the point of my husband and I producing our book until now, um, we've got to have people that have the courage to talk about it because the stigma is still so strong with this, even after all these years and everybody knows it's still very strong. I can walk into a room and tell somebody and you can already feel with their body language, there's a change or you got HIV, you know, you, you know, they're feel, you know, should I drink after you should have do, you know, you still have all of that. And so it's going to take some, the, those of us that have the courage, which I've now developed, to get out there and say. And so I am in this, this space in my head where every opportunity 
on my social media, everywhere, I'm going to tell people that I have it. Because with Black people, but especially Black women, we've got to tell ourselves the truth. And and some subjects in our culture have always been taboo. And you, you talk about them, but you talk about them in ways that is not straightforward. So we got to make it straightforward. You got to say exactly what it is. Um, as Dr. Bryant was just saying, look, it should make it normal. Just like you're asking about, you know, what you're going to eat, make it normal about, you know, what we can have sex, you know, are you going to wear a condom? We got to get it to that place in our community. And so I feel like we just need more voices to help tell our women and, and in our sisterhoods, be more honest in our sisterhoods, because sometimes we're not honest in our sisterhoods. You don't know how this one's going to take it. It's just really about honesty. That's what I wrote down here is just truth, 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 truth. Tell the truth. And we do need more commercials. It is not only about the the community with our, our, our um, you know, uh, transgender or whatever. It's not just about that community. The heterosexual community needs a voice. They need a voice, too. They need a face. And even folks that are not in those communities, those that can't got it through needles or whatever, they need a voice. They need a face. So I, I feel like all these communities, and the namely Black women, we need new faces. We need more voices. And and I, I'm grateful that all of you all are on here because to me that feels like support because I think they're going to need support because when you get out there and you say something, you don't want your back feeling open like you don't have any support. Um, and that's another thing I think with black women, sometimes we don't feel like we have the support. So if you step out there, you feel like you're on that limb by yourself and we really don't want to be out there by ourselves. We've supported everybody else. We need that support. So that's what I feel like is another challenge for black women. You don't feel like you have the support and we need it. So for black women, we need the face, we need more voices and we need support. Agreed. Now, this is for the entire panel. This is a statistic that I found very interesting. Women ages 55 and up have the highest number of new HIV infections of any group of women. Ladies, why do we think that's happening? Um, well, one, because that particular group is a couple of things. One, either you recently got a divorce, two, husband could have passed away, or three, hey, I'm not trying to beat up on the church, but it is what it is. I, you know, I've been a deaconess, stewardess for all these years, and I'm good. And they didn't do like Dr. Jasmine Bryant said. They didn't ask about the other person's privacy because woe again is not me. I'm not a prostitute. I've never been with somebody who was in prison. I come from a good family. So again, whoa, it's not me. And this is the same situation we were in when we came out with the state with silence is death back in 1990, whatever. So we still had the same problem. So basically some of the same issues, same stigmas that were happening when we all were out here in the 90s beating the street in the early 2000s, it still exists. Mm -hmm. So the best thing to do is we need to empower, empower, empower. And I really love what you said, Dr. Jasmine, about that privacy now, I'm gonna use that. You can have edit. 
Um, but I, I would like to add to what um, Ms. Morris said. Um, additionally, that age group, their providers don't really ask those types of questions, right, about those high risk behaviors. So, you know, they may not be asking, you know, are you back on the scene? Are you, you know, seeing somebody new or, you know, have you had any life changes lately? Like those types of questions oftentimes are omitted. And we know even with younger populations, a lot of providers may not even ask if you want to be screened for HIV, right? Those conversations are still missing in the younger age group and they certainly fade out as individuals age and go across the lifespan. And so that is one of the factors as far as patient provider communication that is impacting those particular um, outcomes that we see in that age group. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came to my mind was Viagra. Yeah. Viagra came around and it, it changed everything. It was a game changer for, for older adults. So yeah, I, I, I wanted to add to what Dr. Bryant said, which um, is true as far as the lack of thorough assessment by the providers with that particular age group. And when I think about what HIV presents like, a lot of the times we hear HIV can look like flu-like symptoms. And so in the older adult, a lot of times that can actually be, be mistaken for just an age-related illness. And so they may not suspect HIV because again, in that population, sometimes they may have a cold or pneumonia or something else. So they, the first impression would not be, oh, let me do an HIV test to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so with an older patient who already may have a weakened immune system, as we talked about how HIV affects the immune system, they actually can experience a more advanced disease progression by the time that they are even diagnosed. And so we definitely want to make sure that when it comes to providers that they are asking those questions, as Dr. Bryant mentioned, and that they are um, using HIV testing as part of that screening process. Mm-hmm. We, we got a comment from a viewer that said some of the empty nesters are back on the scene living their hot girl summer because the kids are older and independent. So they are getting it in. <laughs> Ms. Walton, did you have anything you wanted to add? I, I think everyone is, has certainly added, um, you know, we we see an awful lot of uh, of more mature adults, um, you know, around here, and they are definitely enjoying their sexual uh, health. So, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, but, but of course, also they they come a lot of them come from a time, you know, where it was really difficult to talk about condoms and different things like that. Mm -hmm. But I do find they're very curious to have discussions. So, um, you know, that, that has always been lots of fun. Of course, now I'm, now I'm like in that age group. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of funny how you kind of come full circle, but yeah. What everyone said, I, I agree. We had a young man comment that he is taking a thorough, a thorough sex history regardless. So, okay. That's great. Um, so for the panel, because our hour is just about up, but for each of your, uh, from each of your professional perspectives, how do we as women in the fight against the spread of HIV ensure that affordable care, quality care, equal treatment is given to women we serve 
to further reduce the number of HIV infections. I will start with Ms. Morris. Um, again, as we've already stated, um, I think we've come full circle with this mm -hmm. is to uh, basically is going back to the messaging because what I feel that a lot of women miss as well as men who are HIV positive, they just have lack of knowledge of where to go and what to do and how to proceed. So as being a prevention um, person, I would say it comes back to us to make sure we have the right messaging. Because if you don't have the right messages and someone uh, go to the hospital, they test positive, and they may not get that information they need right then and there. We got to do more of like, we still utilize billboards, again, utilizing our social media. But I think it goes back to messaging to take care of everything across the board. Okay, anybody have anything they want to share? I'll just add this one piece. Um, I think that in order to reduce the numbers, it really will start with us. So as providers, as researchers, when we're coming into contact with this priority population, um, being warm and empathetic is so important. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to women living with HIV and they their experience with the healthcare system is not good. So their medical adherence is not good. Um, their ability to you know, take care of themselves and feel good about themselves is a challenge, particularly because of the experiences they have in the healthcare arena. So I just really challenge us, um, even as a researcher, just it's not just research, right? Really seek to improve the community um, that we seek to serve. I think that would be my primary message. I, I think that's very valid because, you know, being on the front lines, sometimes you get engulfed in a little of everything going on and your paperwork and you're this and you're at, you know, really you have to pay attention to check yourself to be available to listen to what people are saying. Cause you know, sometimes the message they're trying to share is not so specific, like, hi, I need help. You know, I don't know how to talk about this or this, that, or the other. Sometimes it's kind of vague. So, you know, I've really found that just slowing down and listening, you know, really allows me to be able to empower, um, you know, all of the, the people who I talk to. But, you know, specifically with women, um, you know, just offering them that, that the empathy and the acknowledgement that what they're doing is very, very difficult and, mm -hmm. you know, cheerleading them on to be able to take care of themselves. Yes. Well, ladies, I want to so much thank you for joining us this evening. I think this was a wonderful panel discussion Thank you for taking time out of your schedules to join us and add information and share your expertise with our group. Um, we really appreciate you. Um, women empowering women, that's what we're here to do. I think we've accomplished that tonight. And again, I thank you. You all stay safe and have a great evening. Good night. Night. <laughs>